Uh, you may have read this weekend that uh, Dr. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, passed away after a two-year battle with pancreatic cancer. Uh, he is well-known in Christian circles as uh, one who speaks the gospel to uh, people in urban cities and environments, very secular people, and, and brings them, un, he preaches an uncompromising gospel to our generation, to some of the, the most secular, irreligious people on the planet. And he, uh, God used him in that in great ways. Many of you were in the course that we had not long ago, the Tim Keller course, The Reason for God, based on his excellent book called The Reason for God, where he sat down with skeptics, lost people, but, but specifically skeptics. And he, uh, he talked to them about what they believe in different areas and shared the gospel with them in each of those areas. Well, he has passed away, gone home to be with the Lord, and his son reported that among his last words were this. He said, there is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. There is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. Why? Because as we've seen in the book of 1 Peter, his hope is in the living hope of Jesus Christ. His hope is in his God, not in this life, not in this world, but his hope was set firmly in Christ. So when he departed from this world, he arrived, the Bible says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. He arrived, arrived right away in the presence of his Jesus, whom he had served those 72 years. So uh, he's home to be with the Lord. Uh, also, you may have read this week an interesting uh, action that took place in Christian circles, and, and uh, just to bring you up to date, if you're not aware of this, uh, there is a, or was a theme park in Orlando, not, long, not far from Disney World, called the Holy Land Experience. And the Holy Land Experience was founded around 2005, 2006. In 2007, it was purchased by TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the Christian Network, to be a theme park. They wanted a theme park that would rival Disney World nearby in Orlando, but it would be explicitly Christian. It would host all kinds of family fair, putt-putt uh, uh, games, everything biblically themed, and a lot of presentations and uh, theater shows, and, and all of them biblically themed and, and Christian-based. It never did very well, never really took hold, never did very well, um, and when the pandemic hit, their attendance nosedived even further, and this week, uh, the Holy Land Experience was sold, TBN sold the Holy Land Experience uh, for something like $37 million to um, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists are not going to make it a Christian theme park. They're going to turn it into an office complex for Seventh-day Adventists. And when they sold it, it was $8 million underwater, $8 million in debt. Now, I use that illustration to, to just point out a, a simple truth. It's not wrong for us to engage as Christians in Christian activity in this world. Don't misunderstand. That's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to ask ourselves uh, if our starting point is we want to be like the, the unchurched world. And, and we just want to create our own version of what they have. If that's our starting point, how biblical is that? In other words, we want, to, we want to mirror the unchurched, the unsaved, the non-Christian world. We want to mirror them 
and then take what, what they have and baptize it and make it seem Christian. Probably not a good idea. Because the Bible teaches that we are to stand apart. If we are anything, we are to be followers of Christ in this world. What should distinguish us is not how we do Christian stuff to offset the secular stuff. What should distinguish us is that we are followers of Christ. Jesus Christ should distinguish us. And that should show up in our attitudes, our behaviors, our actions, our decisions, and in our relationships. You'll remember two weeks ago before Mother's Day, as we closed out 1 Peter chapter 1, we were talking about cultivating godly relationships. We talked about, and Peter showed us, that one of the ways to prepare uh, for standing for Christ in our generation is to be the church and to be in godly relationships with one another and to cultivate those godly relationships. This morning, he's going to continue that theme as we open chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, find with me 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and hold your place there for just a moment. Uh, remember that Peter has turned the corner just a few weeks ago. He turned the corner from talking about our living hope to talking about how our living hope in Christ and being Christians in this hostile world should uh, show up in our relationships, our decisions, and our behavior. So the rest of the book is really very practical. And we're going to see coming up, he talks a lot about relationships, uh, marriage relationships, household relationships, parents and children relationships, and our relationship to the government, which is very relevant these days, isn't it? So as he turns that corner, again, the focus is it's not where we are that matters, it's who we are that matters. Who you are in Christ and how you practice living for Christ wherever you are in this world and in whatever relationships you have in this world. So again, he returns to talking about cultivating godly relationships. Now I want to pause there also and define what we mean by godly relationships and why I even insert that word in the discussion. Peter doesn't say that explicitly, but that's what he's talking about. Why say it that way? Well, here's why. See, we have a host of relationships in our lives, don't we? A host of relationships in this world. Did you know that sociologists and psychologists tell us that at any given time in your whole life, you can only know about 125 people? Uh, that's the reason, by the way, when the church attendance reaches more than 125 and when, is when you start going, well, I don't know her. I don't know him. And the larger the church becomes in attendance and in participation, the more likely it is you're going to feel that way sometimes. Uh, by the way, that's why you need to have small groups and strong relationships among other people. Because whether it's someone you're distantly related with, to, uh, distantly acquainted to, or it's someone you know really well, in your whole life you're only going to know about 125 people at a time. That's how God wired us, I don't know. But that, that's the way he works. That's the way he wired you. And some of those folks you'll know really, really well. So you have a host of relationships all the time. Some in the church, some outside of the church, some with Christians, some with non-Christians, some with people that go to other churches. Uh, you have a host of relationships, school relationships, work relationships, family relationships. All the time you have relationships. Life is made up of our relationships and people influence us in those relationships and you influence people in your relationships as well. But what distinguishes believers in Christ what distinguishes Christians in the body of Christ is that while in some ways your relationships with one another are similar to 
relationships outside the church in that they're relationships. They, they, they're made up of the same things. I like you. I like you too. You know, that kind of thing. We can talk. Yeah, we can talk. We don't get along. We get along. You know, whatever. But they're made up of some similar things. But what distinguishes people in the body of Christ is Jesus Christ. And your relationships with each other should show your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you may be side by side with someone in the church that otherwise in the world you would never interact with. You wouldn't bump into them. You don't work in the same place. You don't go to school together. Uh, you don't, your families don't interact. You don't have the same hobbies. But when you land in the body of Christ, your siblings in Christ, when you both come to faith in Christ, you're born again in Christ. So what defines you in this body is your relationship with Christ. So to build a godly relationship is to build a relationship that echoes and mirrors and reflects your mutual relationships with Christ. And the Bible teaches that consistently and constantly as we're going to see right now in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now remember, Peter is talking to believers who are, who are spread out throughout the Roman Empire due to persecution. And what he says has universal teaching on relationships in the body of Christ. And as we'll look at it this morning, what he's going to help us understand is how to cultivate godly relationships. Two weeks ago, we saw the importance of that practice. Well, this morning, we're going to see how to do it. Three basic ways to cultivate those godly relationships. So look there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, and this is what he says. Therefore, that is, because of everything I just said about practicing godly relationships, cultivating those, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So look with me at three ways you can cultivate godly relationships. Here's how you do it. First of all, Peter says, refuse to be divisive. Refuse to be divisive. Make a decision that you will not be the instigator of division in relationships in the body of Christ. The way he puts it is rid yourself of the vices that he's going to mention. Rid yourself of habits and behaviors and attitudes that are divisive in relationships to the body of Christ. The term translated rid yourself can mean throw off or shed or like taking clothes off, take off these attitudes and habits and, and, and behaviors. And it's phrased as an ongoing practice. Not a one-time thing. It's something that you and I need to do every day all the time. We are ridding ourselves of these habits and behaviors and attitudes that have a negative effect on relationships that, that cause dissension and division among people in the body of Christ and in Christian fellowship. So by doing that, you're, you're refusing to practice those. You, you instead, you are attending to those. When they rise up in your life, you're going to get rid of them because you refuse to to have those in your life. You refuse to foster those. Now Peter gives us five samples. And we'll see in just a moment there's a reason for these five particular ones that he picked. They're not the only ones. The Bible teaches there are other habits, attitudes, and behaviors that Christians should be getting rid of. And as you get to know the Word of God, you get to know what some of those are. God shows in your life. He'll show you in your life, by the way, if you've got these in your life and, and you need to get rid of them. You need to work with him and let him weed these out, get rid of these in your life. But Peter picks five, and he picks them because they were particularly uh, significant for the believers that he's writing to, but they have a connection to what he's going to say 
as the second way to cultivate these relationships. I want to look at these five just very briefly, but I also want you to notice, notice as we fast forward to the 21st century that all five of these vices, all five of these attitudes and behaviors are made worse by social media. He was talking about them in the first century. Telephone, let alone social media, hadn't even been invented yet. But they are ramped up more than we could imagine due to social media. Let's look at these five briefly. Get rid of these. If you see them in your life, get rid of these. And let God show it to you. Get rid of these so you can cultivate healthy and godly relationships. The first is malice. He says all malice. Now this is a general term that means uh, evil intent. That is, I want to harm you. You're thinking in your mind. You don't have to do anything yet, but your mind is mulling over that person you don't like or you had an argument with, and you're thinking, I, I want to harm you. That's, that's malice, evil intent, the intention to do harm. And maybe it hasn't played out in practice yet. But you look across the aisle at that person, you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweet about you tomorrow. Peter says, get rid of it. When that evil intent rises in your head, get rid of it. Second is deceit. As we read it, it's deceit. This word, translated deceit, comes from the first century word for casting bait to catch fish. You guys, ever, men and women, if you, if you like to fish, have you ever thought about the fact that when you fish with a lure, you're being deceitful? Yeah, you're deceiving the fish. And they see, absolutely, up front somewhere, absolutely. That is the point. The better the deception, the more likely I'll catch one. And when that lure is swimming through the water, the fish is thinking that's food, and you're thinking, I'm lying to you. And you are going for the bait. Well, Peter uses that word in that picture here. The root of the word, actually, deception is untruth. It's, it's a lack of truth. So what he's saying is, when that idea rises in your head to lie, you are presenting untruth in any context to your beloved in Christ. You are presenting untruth to them. And maybe that untruth is to make yourself look better. Maybe that untruth is to lead them into temptation. Maybe that untruth is just to get out of a situation you don't want to participate in. But when you have that deception rise up in your heart, Peter says, get rid of it. Because the foundation for healthy relationships, especially in the church, is truth. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love to our siblings in Christ. That's so important because there's no way we can grow up to be mature in Christ if we are not being honest with one another. Loving, honest, truthful with one another. And when you practice any kind of deception, you're not getting that from God. The evil one, the father of lies, plants that in your mind, that temptation to deceive your sibling in Christ or to lie about what you're doing. You're not, you're not going to take that commitment. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to show up here. I'm not gonna, whatever that lie is, it may seem soft to you, but even so, it's deception. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. If you want to have godly relationships, Jesus-based relationships, be truthful, loving, but truthful with one another. 
A third Peter says to get rid of hypocrisy. Now, most of us are familiar with the term hypocrisy. It shows up a lot in the Bible, and it simply means uh, you're different on the outside than you are on the inside. You're play-acting. You're pretending you're someone else that you're not. So you are uh, putting up a front to your siblings in Christ and pretending uh, you're more Christian than you are. You come to church, and you behave that way because you know it looks good at church, but when you go off uh, and on Monday morning through the next Saturday, you're behaving entirely differently. That's hypocrisy. It's when you show a different you on Facebook for your Christian friends than you live in real life. That's hypocrisy. Peter says, get rid of it. Get it out of your life because it can't partner with truth. If you're trying to get rid of the deceit and you practice hypocrisy, those two things can't go together. Fourth, he says envy. And envy shows up a lot in lists like this in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And the reason for that is, is it's human nature to be envious of other people, to want what they want, to look at our lives with discontent. That's the root of the word envy in the Bible is discontent. It means you look at your life and then you look at the other people around you, in our case Christians, and you say, why is my life not as good as theirs? Or why can't I have what they have? Or you look across the aisle and you just implicitly don't like them because they have more stuff than you do. They get paid more than you do. They, they retired before you could. Or, or whatever the situation is, maybe they're healthier than you are. But you're envious of them and their life. If there is anything fostered in social media, that's it. Agree? Oh, yeah. We are constantly being bombarded with how great everybody else's life is. And envy slithers in. They say, why can't I have that? Why can't I be like that? Why, why can't I have what they have? Be who they are. It's, it fosters discontent. And discontent, listen, is saying to God, I don't like who you made me. Envy is saying to God, I don't like who you made me. I don't want the life you gave me. I can't trust you. Envy is making the other person an idol rather than exalting God in your life. And we all struggle with this. We all do. And the reason Peter says to be ridding yourself of it regularly is because it's a constant attribute of our culture. It always has been. Did you know it is for pastors too? Sure it is. For pastors too, because it's always the pastor of the mega church that speaks at the conferences. It's always the pastor of the big church, the mega church, that, that has the books out on the table that gets asked to do stuff. And other pastors look that way, and it's, it's, we've got to be careful. We, we watch out, but it's implicit. It could slither in where we think, God, why can't I do that? And if I say that to God, I'm saying, God, I don't like who you made me. I don't like where you put me. You know what God says back? Here's the thing. I called you to be the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Shalot, not him. As Jesus said to Peter when he was looking at John, what about him? 
Jesus says, let me worry about him. You worry about you. Because I've got a life and a ministry and a service for you. Get rid of that envy. It'll pop up. And if you're scrolling in social media and it starts to happen, recognize that's what it is. Rid yourself of it. Confess it to God. And say to God, help me be content. Make me content in the life that you've given me. Let me see what you want to do through me that you're not going to do through anyone else, God. That's why you made me. You want to do a work through me you're not going to do through anyone else. How dare I envy their life and be discontent with mine? And last, slander. Oh my. Slander is exactly what it sounds like. Speaking ill of other people. Spreading rumors and gossip about other people. Christians, I'm sorry, we do it as much as the world does it. Get rid of it. When the inclination arises to participate in gossip or slander or talking down about other people, get rid of it. And I'll tell you, you know, social media makes this just rampant. Rampant all the time. Peter says, get rid of it. You know why? You know why he, he, he logs it here with these others? Because at the root of slander is deceit. The lack of truth. An evil intent. Malice. If you're going to talk about someone badly, if you're going to share gossip about them, if you're going to slander them, you are aggravating a bad situation already and you are intentionally being malicious toward that person. So the first step toward cultivating godly relationships in the church, relationships that reflect Jesus, is to refuse to be divisive, refuse to practice these five traits or attitudes and others the Lord may show you in your life. So that's the negative side. Then he says, here's the positive side. To cultivate godly relationships, aspire to be mature. Aspire to be mature. Actually work on growing up in Christ. Look at verse 2 again. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your Salvation, growth and maturity is part of being a Christian. And he uses a common image here, common in the, in the ancient world and common to us as well, to motivate us to aspire to maturity, to growing up in Christ. Because the more we're focused on our own maturity, the more we will see these things we need to get rid of and the less likely we are to be divisive or destructive in the church. So he says, while you're ridding yourself of these things, not practicing those, Practice desiring the pure milk of the word. The term translated desire means to crave intensely. It's a very strong word. And it illustrates a choice, a decision that you and I make. We desire to grow in Christ or we, we choose not to grow in Christ. We choose to desire it. We choose not to grow in Christ. You, you make a decision. But the Christian life was never intended to be passive. You were never intended to come to church, to go home, come to church, to go home. You were intended to become more like Christ and to grow in your relationship with Christ. And Peter says there's something you can do to do that. You can digest the pure milk of the Word. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that the illustration of milk and meat is common in the New Testament when talking to Christians about maturity. Sometimes it's used in a positive way and sometimes it's used in a negative way. If it's used in a negative way, the milk is negative and the meat is positive. The Apostle Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because he says the reason you have division in the church is that you are still drinking 
milk instead of eating solid meat. That is to say, the reason there's division in the church is you are immature Christians. That's what Paul says. And in that case, meat is the good thing and milk is not. But in the illustration Peter's using, the, the meat is not, not there because the milk is the good illustration and he lays it alongside the pure milk of the word. It's helpful to know that the term translated pure has the same root as the earlier one as deceit. That is, the root means truth. They're both ground. One is anti-truth and one is pro-truth. And when you digest the Word of God, you are digesting the truth of God. The pure truth of God's Word will push out all the lies, deceit, the slander, the hypocrisy that tries to edge its way into your life. If you're going to be maturing in your faith, you've got to be in God's Word and digesting the purity of that truth. And that pure truth offsets everything else you hear, all the lies, the deceit, everything else in the culture. You're going to be digesting that truth. In doing that, Peter says, you will grow up. You will mature into your salvation. Remember that basic principle that we've talked about that's threaded through 1 Peter. It's in all of the New Testament. But Peter himself stands on this truth. And that is, your salvation is not an event, it's a process. You are saved if you came to faith in Christ, repented of your sins, trusted Him as your Savior. You're saved. But the Bible also teaches that you are being saved, or sometimes the word is used as sanctified. You are becoming more like Christ. You are growing up into salvation. You are being saved, and, and, and every day that you trust Christ and you digest his word and, and you're in prayer, you are growing up some more into your salvation. You're actually experiencing your salvation, participating in what God has in store for you. So you are saved and you're being saved, but there's a real truth to the, to the fact that you will be saved. There will be a consummation of the age in which you have grown up completely. You're fully mature in Christ. You're in your resurrected body. You're in the new heaven and the new earth, and you have experienced all the fullness of your salvation. Peter calls it elsewhere the revelation of Jesus Christ, that moment in which you complete your salvation in Christ. Salvation is not an event, it's a process. And that process includes maturing, intentionally desiring the pure milk of the word so you can grow up in Christ. In 1952, Charles was three years old when his mother ascended to the throne as Queen of England. So in 1952, because he was the heir to that throne himself, once she came to the throne, he became heir to that throne. So in a very real sense, starting that year, Charles became the de facto king of England. One day, someday, if he lived long enough, even as a little boy, people would say, he's going to be king. His title was Prince of Wales, always growing up life. But that title was a precursor to the king of England. And everybody knew it. He lived his whole life that way so far. Then this past September, his mother, the queen of England, passed away. And suddenly he went from being the de facto king born into the royal family, the assumption he would be king, to being king, taking her place as king, being recognized by all as the king. And yet, just a few weeks ago, he had his coronation and was crowned king. So at which time did he become king? Was he always king? 
Was he partly king? Was he becoming king? See how it illustrates what Christ is doing in us. And that the moment you were saved in Christ, you are saved, but you're also being saved. You're living a lifetime of maturing in Christ, of being sanctified in Christ, of making decisions for relationships and other actions and behaviors that will help you grow in Christ, of digesting the pure milk of God's truth and His Word so you can become more like Christ. You are being saved, and then one day you will be saved. Your coronation, your crowning, your consummation, is yet to come. The glory of God in Christ will show through you and all the universe will know it. You can say, I refuse to be divisive. Good for you. I, I, I'm not, when, those, when those bad attitudes and that evil intent rises in my mind, that temptation is there, I'm going to push that away. I'm going to pray good for you. But on the positive side, you should be becoming more like Christ. And to do that, you need to aspire to be mature, to grow in your faith, to obey the word of God and become more like Christ, which requires the pure milk of God's truth. The word of God digested in you, working out your salvation through the Holy Spirit is what God uses for that. And then third, Peter says, here, here's an action you can take. It offsets all the others. It's a result of you taking in the pure milk of the word. And he says, this is your motivation. If you wonder why you should do, why should I do these things? Why should I, why should I do these things? Choose to be kind, Peter says. Choose to be kind. If you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord. This is your motivation, he says. He, he's quoting Psalm 34 and verse 8. As a good Hebrew man would know that word in that psalm, Psalm 34 and verse 8. It says, if you have tasted of the word of the Lord, of the goodness of God, if you've tasted of the goodness of God, blessed are those who find refuge in him. Peter takes that first part, and, and the term, if you have tasted, could be translated since you have experienced, but we really could underscore the, the idea of if, because he, he, it goes more like this. It's kind of what he's saying. If you've tasted of the salvation and the goodness of God, pause there, you have, haven't you? You have, haven't you? If you have, then behave this way. Take in the pure milk of the word. Uh, the term translated good or goodness is kindness. It, it reflects the kindness, the mercy of God. And, and taste means obviously what it means, experienced it personally. So he says you have, you have tasted, you've experienced personally. The kindness of God through his goodness, through his mercy, through his compassion toward you. So since you have, then be that way toward each other. Imagine what a difference it would make, Christians, in our relationships with one another, if each of us chose at the outset to practice kindness and goodness toward one another. Pastor Bob, that's pretty hard with so-and-so because every time they come at me, they come at me wagging their finger. They come at me upset. And I just can't know if I can deal with that. Well, here's the thing. What difference would it make if you decided in advance to be kind? And being kind means I don't engage in that argument. Being kind means definitely I don't slander you. I'm not malicious toward you. I want to show the goodness of God toward you. 
And notice Peter doesn't put in parentheses, if you like them. No. You do the first two things because you have tasted the goodness of God. He has been kind to you in your salvation, hasn't he? So let's behave that way toward each other. Let's cultivate godly relationships that demonstrate the kindness of God. And sometimes even being proactive, just as God was in Christ, sometimes it means coming alongside that hurting person and being kind and good toward them. Sometimes it means calling up someone that you know is hurting, or maybe they're argumentative, calling them up and being kind toward them. Because God's been kind toward you and good toward you. In 2019, Ashley Joss, 27 years old, was in Target looking for something new to read, buying some books. She picked up a couple of books, and she was having kind of a tough time that, that week, tough day. Uh, but she wants something new to read. So she bought some books, took them home, started reading the first one, and in the course of it, her dog startled her, and she dropped the book. And when she dropped the book, $5 and a note spun out of between the pages. And she thought, well, that's interesting. She picked up the note and the $5, and it said something like this. If you bought this book and you found this note, I want you to know I'm having a tough day today. So I wanted to pause and encourage you. The note went on to say, buy a cup of coffee, go get a donut, share the day with someone else. And remember, the note said, you are loved, you are important, and you are more than whatever's happening to you. And the signature was simply Lisa. Ashley was taken aback by that note. It completely changed her perspective. She took a picture of it and she tweeted it. She showed it on social media and was surprised when it went viral rapidly. She also shared how it impacted her and that was part of what went rapid. And another person, another person, another person said, I just needed to hear that. I just needed to be reminded that I'm important, that I'm worthy. I needed to be reminded that I'm loved and on and on and on it went. And then people started behaving more kindly because of the note. Kindness spread. Because Lisa, whoever she was, whoever she is out there, was kind to a person she had never met. Ashley's dad even said it changed his perspective that now when he's in the coffee line, he buys coffee for the people behind him. Now when he goes and buys groceries, he pays for the people behind him. He just wants to be kind in some way because there are people hurting, he says, and that note was a reminder. They're out there hurting. And Ashley said that one moment, that note, changed her perspective for the rest of her life. She says, now instead of looking at myself and I've had a tough day, she says, now I get up and every week I make a commitment to do something kind, to look for an opportunity to be kind to someone else. All of humanity should do that. We agree. Because kindness is contagious, isn't it? But here's the thing, believers in Christ, what you know that the world doesn't yet know is that when we taste of the goodness and the kindness of God and receive eternal life, it changes our lives completely. It changes us forever. So why are we not more proactive to be kind toward one another? If we have tasted and participated of 
and experience the goodness and the kindness of God. Should we at least do that for our siblings in Christ? Next time you think about posting something on social media, think about that. Next time you pass that person in the hallway here and say, I'm not talking to them, think about that. Next time you have an opportunity to take somebody out for coffee and you say, I'm not going to do that, think about that. At the very least, if we've tasted, experienced his grace, his compassion, his goodness, shouldn't we be doing that for each other? And if you're in this room or you're at home and you have never tasted of the goodness of God through Jesus Christ and his salvation, I want to give you a chance to do that right now today. Did you know by trusting Christ as your Savior, confessing you're a sinner, repenting of your sin, trusting him as your Savior, you will experience the goodness of God. And as that psalm wraps up, Psalm 34, 8, blessed is the person whose refuge is the Lord. Blessed are you if you run to him, if you hide in him, if you bring to him your burdens, your cares, and your worries and your concerns, because you'll meet him there, and you'll experience his goodness. If you're in-house or at home, in a little while I'm going to pray for you and with you that you put your faith and trust in Christ and taste of the goodness, the kindness, the compassion of God in Christ today. For all of us, I want to challenge you to turn over Again, what, what burdens you, what cares you have, turn over again to him and confess to him if you've been malicious, if you've been unkind, if you've been deceitful to, to anyone else. Ask his forgiveness. Turn that over to him. Ask him to keep changing you and making you more like Christ and watch him do it. And I would challenge you believers in Christ to commit, aspire to desiring the word of God in your life, to be hungry for the word of God in your life. If that's not happening, ask him to change and shape your heart that you would hunger for his word. That's how he changes you as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pause in this moment, God. God, we pause acknowledging your kindness and your goodness in Christ. We pause acknowledging, God, that you have been gracious and compassionate and good to us when we did not deserve it. We pause, God, in this moment asking for your forgiveness where we have been malicious, where we have slandered, where we have been hypocrites, God, where we've been envious. Father, please forgive us for these things, God. Forgive us where we have not been truthful, where we've been deceitful. Father, please forgive us for that. And forgive us, God, where we've not been kind to one another. We, have, we know your goodness, God. So God, cleanse us of these attitudes, habits, and behaviors. We confess to you, Father, that's who we've been, but that's not who we want to be. So Father, cleanse us of that. Give us courage and strength, confidence in you to make those decisions, to set that old life behind and to live for Christ. And I pray, God, you would help us cultivate godly relationships, Jesus-type relationships in the body of Christ, that the world would look on and say, I want that. I want to be a part of a relationship like that. So, God, I pray for each one in this room and at home, each one of us who calls ourselves believers, God, we know who you are. We know that you've saved us. We have tasted of your goodness. So God, change us and make us more like Christ. And Father, I pray for those relationships that you're bringing to mind because certainly you are. There are people in our lives, God, relationships that haunt us, difficult times and conversations. Help us with those, God. Let us bring forgiveness, soften our hearts, help us to be kind, definitely not to be malicious or slander or unkind or deceitful, but God, help us to be kind toward those in our lives that you bring into our lives. If there's a difficult relationship, God, and 
we have a hard time engaging in a conversation, bring that person to prayer. Bring that person to our minds. Help us to pray for them. Show us how to pray for them, God, that they'd be one of our ones, that they would be one that we would hold up in prayer until that conversation happens. That changes everything in Christ. Help us, God, to cultivate godly relationships right here at First Baptist Church and in the body of Christ. And Father, I pray for that one here or at home, that today would say, I want a taste of the kindness of God in Jesus Christ, the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. I pray this prayer of faith with them, God, and I pray right now for that one or two who would, the first time today, trust Christ as their Savior. They would pray this prayer of faith, repenting of their sin and putting their trust in Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am. I've tried to be good, but I can't be good enough for you. So Jesus, I understand, I believe you've died on the cross for me and that you're alive today, that you can change me and change my heart. And I confess that I'm a sinner and I repent of my sin today. I want to follow Christ. So Jesus, I ask in faith you would come into my heart, into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Make me righteous in Christ. Father, all these prayers that we pray, you're speaking to our hearts. As we come to a time of response, God, I pray we would respond just as you're leading us to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.